0: Hi, I'm Stephanie, and this is Real Housewives of Neopia. Together, we're going to re-explore some dark depths of pop culture, most of which you've willfully forgotten about. Currently, I'm brandishing an iced coffee with a splash of chocolate oat milk, and I'm ready to fucking party. I've missed you guys a lot. I know that I have been MIA, not to be confused with Mia Clayman's clothing line that we'll be talking about later this episode, but let's just get into it. As we move forward with this journey, I want to let you know I will be posting episodes every Friday, and I live in the Pacific time zone, if that matters. The reason why I'm announcing this in such a rigid and formal way is simply because I work best when there's a possibility of public shame and humiliation coupled with rigid scheduling, so yeah. Thank you to everyone who has shared that I'm in their end-of-year spotify Wrapped because it's completely shaken me to my core and brought me so much joy. I definitely stand by what I do and all the things that I talk about on this humble little pod but the fact that anyone besides my husband is choosing to listen to me just speak for hours on end is wild and I want to continue this journey and just put my best foot forward As I've alluded to, I've sort of been going through it lately due to this never-ending renovation, among some other things, which is why the uploading has been few and far between, but I'm still continuing to flourish on some level, so don't worry. On a sad note, I do want to dedicate this episode to my former client, Ginger, who passed away earlier this week. If you're a new listener, Ginger is a dog. I used to work with dogs before I moved here, which is my greatest passion. To be completely honest, I was bodied by the news, but I know that doesn't compare to how her parents are feeling right now. But nevertheless, I just want to shout out Ginger because she smells like cookies, truly. like She smells like um, the Bath and Body Works sugar cookie foaming antibacterial hand soap just all the time. And she's one of the most gentle, well-mannered dogs I've ever known, and I've known a lot. I've worked with hundreds in the past few years. I've obviously been unable to record lately just because of the comorbidity of stress and construction noise, but I know that Ginger would want me to push through. Realistically, I don't think Ginger knew what a podcast is, even though she is deeply intelligent, but I know she loves seeing her friends happy, so it's for her. If Ginger did listen to podcasts, I think she would like Alexis Nyer's pod, Recovering from Reality, because above all things, she was deeply introspective. So please pour one out for Ginger, give your pets or stuffed animals or whomever extra love in her honor. On the subject of dogs, I need to walk you through the emotional whirlwind that I endured this weekend. I intend to tell anyone who will listen, and the Real Housewives of Neopia audience is no exception. So Friday night, I was checking Petfinder to torture myself, as usual, one of my biggest, most frequent hobbies. I always want to take all of them home. However, there was a five year old Shiba girl named Coco who I immediately felt a deep connection with. I showed Aaron and he felt the same exact way. We proceeded to talk about her all goddamn day on Saturday and basically just fan fictioning about Coco and taking her on walks and going on adventures with her. And then later that evening, I went back to her listing simply because I just wanted to look at pictures of her as one does. But the listing was gone. She was adopted. Both of us were so annoyed that we didn't just immediately apply to adopt her as soon as she entered our orbit, but I hope she's in a really wonderful loving home because that rescue seemed rightfully picky about their adopters, so better take care of our girl. In spite of this, we continue to talk about Coco multiple times a day because I'm slowly becoming unraveled. I'm not someone who has strong breed preferences as far as dogs go, and I'm also firmly team hashtag adopt, don't shop, no matter what, but we keep on receiving these taunting omens after this loss. For one, we decided to watch Sheba videos just to cope, and we saw one cuddling this specific stuffed polar bear that Aaron just bought me like a week ago. Chilling. And then we went on a walk the other day. We were out of the house for less than an hour and a half. And we stuck to just this one very small little area. And we saw six Shebas separately. There was one pair of them. There was a tiny baby and an adult. But besides that, it's all just Shebas existing and thriving independently of one another. Perhaps my mind is melting, but that's a wild coincidence, and it leads me to believe that we just might end up with a little Sheba someday. I know that not everyone is a doghead, so at this point I'll wrap up this rant, but in the words of Tiffany Pollard, I just can't hold some shit in when I have to, like, release. That very profound quote is the perfect segue to my next talking point. I Love New York Reunited special aired last week on VH1, and after viewing it, I felt like I received a vitamin B12 injection. It was way more lighthearted and not super juicy, but regardless, it did a lot for me. Mr. Boston, The Entertainer, Tango, and Millione were there in the flesh, but made and White Boy made Skype appearances. Or maybe is Skype just antiquated now? Was it Zoom? Who's to say? For the record, Mr. Boston now follows me on Instagram, not to brag. While I'm at it and just flexing my hilarious parasocial relationships with VH1 stars, I'll have, you know, Chi-Chi from Daisy of Love also follows me, Cage from Daisy of Love has slid into my DMs, and Sinister from Daisy of Love has viewed my Instagram stories but interacted with none of my content, so I guess I'm just not good enough for him. I was privy to a lot of the information divulged on the special because I'm a freak and I party like it's 2007, but here are some highlights. For one, Tiffany took 100% responsibility for the demise of she and season 2 winner Taylor Maid's relationship, and in her words, she ruined it single-handedly. He's the one who got away for her. It, but she said not to feel too sad because she also revealed she's currently engaged. This filled me with so much joy. There's no leads on who this guy is, but he's certainly very lucky. Conversely, season one winner Tango dubbed Tiffany his own one who got away. And they also squashed their beef, which was really sweet to see. He also came presenting a gift all of the guys did, and most of them were just, like, weird and probably given to them by production. But he framed her eyelashes, and I just want to say that I would pay any amount of money to have that. The eyelashes she wore during that era of her career were absolutely iconic. Everyone thought it was weird, but his explanation is that her eyelashes were in his luggage, stuck to some clothes upon his return home from the show. And I know that might sound foolish, but I can vouch. Not personally, because Tango and I aren't exactly good judies, but as a longtime wearer of strip lashes, sometimes I think that I lost them or threw them away, but they'll just be stuck to the strangest places. Months after I assumed they were gone forever. My personal favorite tidbit was learning that Tiffany's mom, sister Patterson, and white boy have hung out together in Miami. But I've had a feeling about that for a while because there's a photo of her sitting on his lap that's near and dear to my heart. So through deductive reasoning, I assumed they hung out after the show. As for Milione, you might not remember him immediately, I know that I didn't, but that's because he was axed the first night in season two, but Tiffany was adamant about his inclusion in the special because of how his life played out after the show. It's a narrative that's all too familiar and disgusting, but long story short, he spent six years in jail for a crime he didn't commit. Not only that, but the crime in question that he did not commit was murder. The police framed him essentially, so he ended up suing the city of San Francisco and was awarded around $13 million. He's on social media, both Twitter and Instagram, at Jamal JamalTruelove where he also uses his platform to further social change and spread awareness about his own story and the countless ones like it. As always, I will have a relevant fundraising link at the top of this episode description, as well as all of my other episodes. I hope that they do more reunions like this with the other shows like Flavor of Love and Rock of Love, But to be completely honest, I care about Tiffany more than any of those combined, and I just loved seeing credit given where it's due. That special is one of the many things that have kept me afloat throughout the past couple of weeks, so let's talk about the rest, in the spirit of giving credit where it's due. As for my viewing habits, I caught up with Love After Lockup Season 3, in its entirety, within a 24-hour period. I can't recommend it enough, and I'll gladly talk about it more if people want that from me. I also watched a documentary called Born Rich, which Laura from Sexy Unique Podcast recommended. To clarify, she recommended it on the podcast and not to me personally, as I don't believe she knows who I am, but... Maybe someday. I was hooked as soon as she suggested it for fans of High Society, because I absolutely am, so I knew watching Born Rich would be the right thing for me. As I've mentioned in past episodes, High Society is Tinsley Mortimer's 2010 CW reality show that's a complete mess and also available in its entirety on YouTube. Trigger warning for every kind of ism, as well as Harvey Weinstein praise. But in a nutshell, the cast makes Vanderpump rules look like a bunch of respectful, woke kings, so if you like to watch bad people embarrass themselves to the extreme and ruin their reputations for life, then indulge with caution. Additionally, I recommend the recaps of High Society on Sexy Unique podcast, which did result in legal threats from the worst cast member. But back to Born Rich. It's basically a vanity piece by a Johnson & Johnson heir who wants the audience to know that he's not like other rich kids. It follows a bunch of other nepotism babies, which include Ivanka Trump herself. It's from the early 2000s, and there's just no self-awareness to be found, and both of those components, for me, make for perfect media. Watching it also makes me feel like I'm having a psychotic break, which, again, is exactly what I personally seek in my viewing experiences. One of the young men featured is a direct descendant of Condé Nast, which seems especially bone-chilling and topical given the recent Bon Appetit scandal and upheaval. I actually remember when I ha- first had the idea to start this podcast, and I just kind of threw it out there in my IG stories asking what shows I should talk about. And someone, I don't remember who you are, but you deserve credit where it's due. Like I've been emphasizing nonstop in this episode. They asked me to talk about the dark side of Bonapet. This was before everything happened, but they knew the jig was up. As of late, the only former Bonapetite people I really keep up with are Sola and Rick, who were always my favorites, anyways. But on Saturday, I did pick up former BA personality Claire's new cookbook, Dessert Person. I had this two-and-a-half-year-old anthropology gift card. I am not really in anthropology's demographic as far as clothing goes, and consequently, I didn't really know what the rest of the vibe in the store was. I had never even been in one. But I wanted to finally get rid of the gift card on Black Friday weekend. So we went inside an anthropology. And I thought I was just going to get candles to boost my morale. But I saw that her book was there. And I've been wanting to get it for a while because I was really titillated by the table of contents I saw online. But yeah, We also took advantage of a virtual reality Black Friday sale on that note, and I just want to say I'm a gamer girl now. Basically, we slayed some zombies together, and it was a wild ride from start to finish because I'd never used a VR headset in any context, let alone been in like a VR room, but it was super fun. For the record, they use antimicrobial air filters, and it's just your own group in a room. So just me and Aaron writhing around like freaks on a leash and breathing on only each other. But back to the dessert person book. I can't wait for our new oven to be installed because, as I said, I'm just inspired as fuck by the table of contents and all of the beautiful photography within. It wouldn't be me if I didn't go on a creepy tangent about food, so let me just briefly shout out the recipes I'm most excited to execute. A short list. The mascarpone cake with red wine prunes, the salty nut tart with rosemary, the earl gray apricot, I can't pronounce it, I think it's a German word, but basically it's earl gray apricot jam cookies and rice pudding cake with mango caramel. There's also a lot of foundational recipes and a recipe matrix that measures the difficulty of each recipe, taking various factors into account, like the equipment, time, labor, and techniques. So I thought that was definitely helpful too. I did use a gift card to buy it, but if you're wondering if it's worth the price of $35 U.S. or 48 Canadian, there's a lot of content in, in and info in addition to over 100 recipes, plus there's pictures for each recipe, and obviously I respond super well to beautiful food photography. Do with that information what you will and make the best choice for yourself. Before we move on to the Real Housewives of Vancouver reunion recap, I'm going to ride this wave of food talk in an attempt to return to the true roots of Real Housewives of Neopia. That said, it's imperative that I shout out my new favorite pizza, which is AJ's Brooklyn Pizzeria in Vancouver. Specifically, I'm really into their Detroit red top style, which is something I never previously tried. I found them through a sponsored ad on Instagram, and I was really fixated on them because of the picture, and it looked so good. And often, like three in the morning, I would just go through their images on like Yelp or their Facebook page and get Aaron's attention and then simply point at the screen silently. So he went with me (laughs) to avoid further harassment, and both of us loved it. So the crust is super thick, which isn't my usual pizza preference, but their bread quality is really good, and it's a sturdy base for the pizza rather than like a sloppy jalopy deep dish situation. Sloppy jalopy is not entirely pejorative because I appreciate it in certain contexts, but personally, that's not what I want in my pizza. The cheese is underneath, and the sauce is on top, and the surrounding crust on the edges is a tall wall of just straight-up crisped cheese, and even though I have a pretty varied palate and I love all kinds of food, my favorite food group overall is crisped burnt cheese. Like when you're preparing something in the oven that involves cheese and it melts and crisps onto the aluminum foil that you can peel off and eat, that's when I'm the most satisfied in every imaginable regard. So imagine just an inch and a half wall of crisped cheese that surrounds an already good pizza. I live. It was also recently American Thanksgiving, and I no longer live in America or care to celebrate Thanksgiving, but I did miss the feast I usually have with my dad. It's just us. Uh, I've probably alluded to it, but I don't speak to literally anyone else in my family on either side, so just us two and sometimes Aaron. Aaron. But he really knows his way around a charcuterie board, and he gets super experimental with courses throughout the day, which I always enjoy. And then we typically have lamb for dinner. I wasn't able to eat lamb with my dad since he's in Massachusetts and I'm here, but I achieved my Thanksgiving lamb tradition independently. We got our hands on some hand-pulled chili garlic noodles, which already got me really bent out of shape to begin with. And then we also got cumin lamb to mix in with the noodles. Obviously, we washed it all down with shulong baos, and I regret nothing. You're most likely thinking, we get it, Stephanie. Food is your only hobby. And you might be right. But I'm moving on for the sake of the greater good and diving into Real Housewives of Vancouver starting right now. Since this is not licensed by Bravo, Andy Cohen is not in attendance, and instead we have a man named Mike Bickerton. Andy's even said that he doesn't watch any of the international Housewives franchises, which to me is fucked up, but that's on brand for him. Jody and Ronnie, who have clearly made up since the finale, are sitting on one couch while Mary, Reiko, and Christina share the other couch. I know I've mentioned it in passing already, but it's ramped up even more since last time I took note of it. Reiko's been posting a lot of anti-mask and like Candace Owens stuff to her IG story, and that really bums me out because I liked her on the show. And I liked her even more when I found out she's into women. I do want to make a correction because I believe I falsely labeled her as a lesbian before by accident. But I did further research and she just identifies as sexually fluid regardless. Everything kicks off with Mike Bickerton, my king, reading a tweet that states Real Housewives of Vancouver is the nastiest of all the housewives, which is a pretty fair assessment. Jody says she was 150% herself, which, given her showing, I don't think that's something to brag about. But anyways, she does say that some people played a role and were fake. I actually just read a comment on the Housewives subreddit that said Jodi was at Costco in Surrey, which is outside Vancouver, and she was just walking around Costco waiting for people to notice her, and no one did. Frankly, that's also my vibe at Costco when I dress up for the masses and don't receive a compliment, so for once I can empathize with Jody Clayman. When she's asked why she zeroed in on Mary from the jump, literally from the first episode when they went to Whistler, she says that she was simply trying to help Mary through a breakup. I know that when I'm trying to help someone, I instantly call them pathetic, body shame them, and I hit them with fraudulent lawsuits. Who doesn't? This results in a weird side argument between Ronnie and Mary, And Ronnie's insisting that Mary has been married twice. Mary says that's not true. It's only been once. And Ronnie continues to argue with her about it. It's really weird and iconic. I enjoyed it a lot. Thankfully, Ronnie also starts slurring that Mary does not own a scarf studio. Legendary behavior once again. I'm so glad we got to hear about the scarves. Jody also takes a moment to fill her shame. Mary. Christina's clip package just revolves around her being hot. Basically, she's compared to Marilyn Monroe and Bridget Bardot in terms of her sex appeal, which is not an unfounded comparison. Mike Bickerton also asks if she's really 29 because that's how old she allegedly was at the start of season one. And she maintains that she's telling the truth. I've always had doubts too because I think she is beautiful, but in a Stacey's mom sort of way rather than one of my peers because I'm 28. But at the end of the day, to sound like a Bad Girls Club cast member... I trust Christina with my life, so we'll go with it. She does say that she's always lied about her age, but in fact lied about being older because she always hung out with an older crowd. She also informs us that her very irritating ex-husbands who finance her existence love the show. After they talk at length simply about how Christina's hot, queen of disease prevention and control Reiko chimes in to say that Christina is very kind and considerate. Things take a turn when the conversation skews toward the Mia of it all. Apparently, on the way into the reunion, Jodi and Christina ran into each other, and Christina waved. Jodi said, Fuck you, so Christina said, Fuck you too. The interpersonal dynamics at play here are so stressful, and it reminds me of my last apartment with roommates, which you've heard about. At this point, Christina claims she never actually had sex with Mia, and she just said so to needle at Jody. To be completely frank, I believe that something happened, even if it was not all the way S-E-X. So I'm choosing to live in a reality where Christina and Mia did fool around, completely contradicting what I said mere moments ago about how I trust Christina with my life. Jody says that Mia would never have sex with Christina, which again, I don't believe. It's also really gross and weird to me for a parent to speculate over who is or is not good enough for their child to fuck, even if that child is an adult. At this point, we get a bunch of filler segments. The first one is about Ronnie's insane, dramatic way of speaking, which I appreciated because the way she speaks makes me die in the best way possible. Mary and Christina should not mistake my kindness for weakness. And that's literally just how she talks. When Jodi was asked what it was like to be on the receiving end of that wrath on the finale, she says that there's more to be afraid of in the room than Ronnie Negus. At that point, we get a package of Jodi using Yiddish slang along with her invented euphemisms, such as Jewish sex. She often describes anything as Jewish sex, and no one knows what it means. I've Googled it multiple times to ensure that I wasn't just, like, an uncultured bitch, but it's not, like, a saying. It's just something that Jody says. She's asked outright by the host and can't explain it, so I don't think she knows what it means either. She simply says, don't look too deeply. It's all just being funny. Light humor this transitions into Mary and Jody's feud as Jody is still adamant that Mary spread rumors she's not truly Jewish, which doesn't appear to be the case. Reiko attempts to interject on Mary's behalf by stating it's a rumor that's been circulating elsewhere, and Jody quickly retorts, can you imagine what we hear about you, Reiko? And she just repeatedly yells, I'm the victim at Mary over and over. She also believes that Mary got she and Mia thrown out of that charity event, the one where the owner banned Mia from his establishments, period, so that doesn't really make sense. She also claims that the owner, Peter, called her and told her that Mary did it, which Christina immediately challenges because she's friends with Peter and that didn't happen. Mary goes on to explain that her event was all about her son and her son's disease and that Mia was the furthest thing from her mind, all while Jody just laughs in her face and antagonizes her with an evil grin till Mary storms off crying. After Mary returns, we learn that she and Ronnie are not currently friends. The finale ends it up off on such a positive note for them, but it doesn't seem they've maintained that after filming. At this point, Ronnie looks Mary square in the eyes and says, I love you. And that supports the hypothesis I've been harping on all season long. Apparently Ronnie called Mary's family and ex-boyfriends to tell them that she's unstable, which is wild. When she's confronted about this, Ronnie presents some notes she's taken on episode 10 in which she quotes Mary. Mary called herself civil and said that's how she was raised. Ronnie says that it was an insult to her own mother as she felt that Mary was implying a discrepancy in their upbringings. I personally see this as a reach, but this doesn't stop Ronnie from talking about how Her 68-year-old mother was devastated watching that episode and how she was raised in foster care. Her mother was raised in foster care, that is, not herself. It was unusual, to say the least. That's where part one ends. On to part two. King Mike Bickerton opens up by asking only three of the women how much money they dropped on their last shopping trip. Ronnie and Rako have each spent $6,000, and Mary bought her son a $900 suit. This segues to a clip package about Jody's preposterous clothing choices. I know that a lot of you don't even watch Vancouver and rely solely on my descriptions, so I'd compare her aesthetic sensibilities to Mary on Salt Lake City. She looks at herself as very fashion-forward and says she gets her fashion sense from herself when the host asks her more about it. There's some discourse over her penchant for tiaras, which Christina said would be fine on its own, but it's amplified by Jody's condescending freak attitude. That's why I want you guys to watch Vancouver. They have heated discourse over tiaras, like, hello? They also talk about how Jodi loves to wear fur, and she says she feels no guilt about it and there's no blood on her hands. Christina and Mary take issue with it, and Ronnie even tries to gotcha Christina for wearing faux fur on the show. To be clear, when Christina tries to explain to her that it's faux fur, it seems like Ronnie has never heard of faux fur in her life. And I envy that mindset. At this point, it's time to discuss the epic finale luncheon. I just looked up the menu for where they ate, and frankly, it looks overpriced and underwhelming. But I'll have you know, if I went there for brunch, which seems to be the place's specialty, I'd get the $18 brioche French toast or the $23 crispy duck salad with poached pear, pickled lingonberry, pecan, and cider vinaigrette. Wouldn't be my first choice to go there. I'd rather just go somewhere better, or if I was going to an expensive place, I would want it to be better. But that's what I would order. Jodi said she had no idea what she was in for at that luncheon and felt ambushed. And trademark-free Andy Cohen decides to play devil's advocate, as men just love to do, by asking the other women if they were doing what they accused Jodi of. Bullying, that is. My eloquent queen, Christina, said it was more of an intervention than bullying, as they all at that time felt that Jody has a problem with lying and putting people down. Based on what we see as an audience, I'm inclined to agree with that. Quite abruptly, we cut to a way more solemn portion of the reunion, And that centers around Ronnie's daughter, Remy. Apparently, earlier that year, this is really sad, Remy choked on a piece of steak at dinner, and it caused both of her lungs to collapse. As Ronnie explains it, she started to die in her arms, so Ronnie passed out from shock, and their housekeeper then attempted to do the Heimlich on Remy, only to have a heart attack during. This sounds like an insanely traumatic event on all sides. Thankfully, Remy did end up surviving, but I felt like it was a weird choice on the show's part to sandwich this very heavy segment between just like petty Jody drama and then subsequently Reco's cars. Not one to be upstaged, Jody also reveals that Mia got an infection from her rhinoplasty and allegedly almost died as well. This culminates in all of them discussing how life is precious, and Christina chimes in to say that they shouldn't be focused on such petty bullshit as they've been discussing all day with that in mind, and everyone agrees for those two seconds. As I just said, there's a clip package about Reiko's cars and how she does martial arts. In addition, she's apparently working on a gluten-free cookbook, which inspires some weird bickering between she and Jodi because Mike asks how it will compare to Jodi's cookbook, and Jodi simply says that Reiko doesn't cook. They continue to go back and forth about it, and Jody's adamant that Reiko said on national television that she cannot even boil water. It's been quite a while since I watched the beginning episodes of this season, but I literally don't think Reiko said that, because they would have rolled the clip. These editors haven't let us down when there's a discrepancy. It ends awkwardly, just like everything else on this godforsaken show does. Now it's filler time again, but my favorite clip package of the episode revolves around Jodi's penchant for malapropisms. I know everyone fixates on Ramona Singer's inability to say real words, but Jodi's unwavering confidence in her wrongness makes hers much more captivating for me personally. A few examples include using reparable to mean reputable defamitate, using profound to mean profane, and countless other examples. When she's asked if she realizes she says words that just don't exist or she's using them incorrectly, she answers, she lives in her own land. Love that. My least favorite clip package gives Kevin his time to shine, and he even joins the stage briefly. The only note I wrote is a bullet point that just says the word misogyny, because he just talks about how groups of women are inherently toxic, so on and so forth. I don't really care to discuss it further. More interestingly, we now get to hear about the untimely end of Jody and Rako's friendship. They rehash the overcharge issue. So let me just quickly jog your memory and remind you, Reiko spent thirty-two thousand dollars at Jody's store, but was charged thirty-four thousand dollars. Jody claims that this was the additional two thousand dollar charge was from American Express, and that Reiko's bill didn't get paid. So she called Reiko. Reiko paid via American Express, which the boutique allegedly doesn't take. Then she implies that Reiko nefariously reported it as fraud to get out of paying. Queen of disease prevention and control, Reiko, came prepared with receipts in the form of a letter from American Express. This is all so convoluted, so I hope that I'm explaining it as succinctly as possible. But she also noted that Jody said that 2000... Ugh. I'm even getting tripped up trying to talk about it. Reiko noted that the additional $2,000 charge came from American Express, according to Jody, and not Jody as a merchant. So to get it all ironed out, Reiko called American Express, who clarified that they did not charge that fee, and it was in fact the merchant, Jody. The letter in her hand corroborates this. Jodi doesn't waver in the face of inarguable proof, and that's why I just can't quit her. She's delightfully horrific. It wraps up with more fighting about the differences between Vintage and Secondhand, which is a hill that Jodi will happily die on even though we just established that life is precious. She serves Mary, Rako, and Christina all with letters, and they don't open them on camera, but the implication is that they're of a legal nature, most likely cease and desist. It all ends with Mike asking if they'd be back for season two one by one, and everyone gives non-committal responses. I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it for you since I'll be starting season two next week. You will no longer be seeing Reiko and Christina. Big bummer for me about Christina, because she's great, but Reiko, I'm not really going to miss you. You'll still be seeing Jodi, Mary, and Ronnie again, along with a new crop of absolute demons. So... I can't believe it. We've done this together, a full season of a TV show, a Canadian one at that. As I said at the top of the episode, I will be back to a weekly posting schedule and I'm going to see you on Friday. If you wish to support this endeavor for as low as 99 cents monthly, you can feel free to follow the link at the bottom of every episode description. Or just continue listening weekly if you'd rather not do that. Additionally, if you could rate the pod five stars, it would mean the world to me. You can find me on Instagram at Botox Groupon, B-O-T-O-X-G-R-O-U-P-O-N, and the pod on IG at Real Housewives of Neopia. Bye!